Would you open scripture to the book of Titus, chapter 1? Titus, chapter 1. We'll be reading from verse 5 to 9. If you don't have a Bible, if you didn't bring a Bible with you this morning, we encourage you to grab one of the Bibles provided in the chair in front of you. As a matter of fact, um, if you don't have a Bible, we'd love for you to have this Bible, this Pew Bible, and take it home with you. We'd love for you to, to have it and read it and be encouraged by it. Titus chapter 1, verse 5 through 9, page number 998. Here's the word of the Lord for us this morning. This is why I left you in Crete, so that you might put what remained into order and appoint elders in every town, as I directed you. If anyone is above reproach, the husband of one wife and his children are believers and not open to the charge of debauchery or insubordination. For an overseer, as God's steward, must be above reproach. He must not be arrogant or quick-tempered or a drunkard or violent or greedy for gain, but hospitable, a lover of good, self-controlled, upright, holy, and disciplined. He must hold firm to the trustworthy word as taught, so that he may be also able to give instruction in sound doctrine and also to rebuke those who contradict it. Amen. This is the word of the Lord for us. Would you bow with me in a word of prayer, asking God's Spirit to be with us, to assist us? Father, now as we approach your word, we desire to hear from you through the preaching of your word. Lord, we pray that you would give us your spirit so we may hear well, so we may understand, and so we may be able to apply it to our hearts. We pray this in the name of Christ, for his glory and for his honor. Amen. Amen. Friends, this is the fifth um, sermon on the qualification for elders. Uh, This will be the last one from this passage. Lord willing, next week, if we are still alive, if the Lord doesn't return by the time we we meet again, um, we will be going to another passage that will be speaking about some other qualifications just because we're dealing with the qualifications for elders and pastors. For those of you who are visiting uh, with us, we are, and, and perhaps you're, you're new to the life of the church, uh, we as a congregation are in a process of, of looking closely at, at who are the men that God has called, that God calls um, for the leadership in the life of the church. And that invo- involves not just the, the preaching pastor, but who are other men who are to serve the local congregation, the local church, as shepherds, as pastors, as spiritual overseers. God has so designed our lives that as Christians, we should live together in community with other believers. And this community is led by a group of men who are spiritually qualified, who meet certain qualifications. And they are called by the Lord to give oversight over your spiritual life and my spiritual life. Friends, if you're not a Christian, this whole idea of church may seem a very strange idea. Uh, But believe it or not, God, in His providence, He created us to be in fellowship with one another. Part of what it means to be in the likeness, in the image and likeness of God, is that we would be in fellowship, in relationship with one another. We were never supposed to live our lives isolated or as lone rangers. 
part of the fallen nature, part of the, of the fallenness of humanity is that now we seek to live independent, individualistic, uh, self-ruled lives. And friends, because of, our, because of our sin and rebellion, we have rebelled against God, and God has rightly declared that all those who have rebelled against Him deserve His righteous punishment, His righteous judgment. And part of that judgment is separation, isolation. And the greatest of that is not just the, the separation and isolation that we often experience here, and sometimes that's very painful, incredibly painful, but worse than that is a separation and an isolation that we will experience apart from God for all eternity. But God provided a way that we would be rescued from that damnation, from that wrath to come. And that way is Jesus Christ. God has sent His only Son to live a perfect life, the life that none of us were able to live or will ever be able to live. And yet that Son was killed, was sentenced to die on a cross, crucified, cursed by God as a punishment for our rebellion. He, he died as a substitute in our place. So that through his death and then through his resurrection, three days later from the grave, men like you and I can be reconciled with God. And that separation that existed, that was placed between us and God, and that separation that was placed between us, between each other, would now be put aside. And we would be restored with God, our Creator, and that we would be restored with one another with all those who are faithful believers in Jesus Christ. That's why, dear friends, the gospel is not just a gospel for me as a person, as an individualistic person, but the gospel is good news for humanity because it connects us back to our Creator and it also connects us back to one another. Friends, if you, if you, if you haven't heard this gospel before or never responded to this gospel, I encourage you to, to consider it today. And consider responding to it by repenting of your sin and trusting, relying upon Jesus to be the mediator who reconciles you with God and with one another. And if you'd like to know more about that, I'd love to talk to you at the end of the service. But the experience of the church, if you will, is only comprehensible, is only understandable once we understand this gospel that in this gospel we are reconciled and restored and brought back together. And this back-togetherness is manifested week in and week out in the life of the church. That's what we are, dear friends. We are a manifestation of the restoration that God has brought, not only between us and Him, but between us with one another. That's why we call each other brothers and sisters. That's why we care about one another. We want to know what's going on in each other's lives. That's why we want to live our life as, as a family. And in God's providence, in God's sovereignty, He has made this spiritual family to have spiritual leaders who care for it, who watch over it, who lead it, who protect it, who teach it, who guide it, who equip it. And these spiritual leaders are called pastors, elders, bishops, Overseers, these are some of the words the Bible uses for those who are called to be guides and leaders in the church. Well, this morning we are looking at the final 
list of qualifications from this passage about who are the people who are called by the Lord to watch over this community of the gospel. Well, we've already looked, like I said, that we've been now working uh, five sermons, four sermons up until now, this is the fifth, through a list of qualifications. And we saw in previous weeks, we started looking at verse uh, 5 and 6, what it means to be a one-woman man. Well, first of all, what it means to be above reproach. Then uh, what it means to be a one-woman man. What it means to have children who are faithful. These are some of the qualifications for elders and pastors. Then in verse 7, we looked at the list of qualifications that are negative qualifications, meaning what not to be. In verse 7, not to be arrogant, not to be quick-tempered or drunkard or violent or greedy for gain. And then it doesn't stop just with negative qualifications, what not to be. It moves on in verse 8 with what to be. Uh, be hospitable. Be a lover of good. Be self-controlled. Be upright. Be holy. Be disciplined. These are qualifications that actually strike us by how common they are and how equal they are, how ununique they are for all Christians. All these qualifications are things that all of us should strive for as Christians. But then in verse 9, we move to a final list of qualifications that are unique to elders in the sense that, um, in particular, elders must have these qualities in a way that being a Christian may not require you to have these qualities. So let's look at this list of um, qualities that we have in verse 9 that are unique to elders that are not necessarily required for you to have as a Christian. Now, even if you're not required to have these as a Christian, I encourage all Christians to grow in these things. Um, and so that if men, if the Lord calls you at some point to consider serving as an elder, in, whether in this church or in another church, you may be equipped and ready to be doing these things and shepherd God's people. But also, let's look at this list of qualifications so that we know how to affirm and who to affirm when time comes for our congregation to affirm other elders besides me in this congregation. So let's look at these three last qualifications of this passage. Elders, first of all, must be devoted to the Word. Elders must be devoted to the Word. Look at verse 9. He must first, I mean, he must hold firm to the trustworthy word as taught. Holding firm. What does that mean? The, 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 the word used for holding firm could also be translated as holding fast or being devoted to something. Being devoted to the word. By the way, the same, the same expression, the same word appears in another verse in the uh, Gospel of Matthew chapter 6 where Jesus tells his disciples no one can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. Be devoted to one, clinging to one, relying upon one, pursuing one. Being devoted to the Word involves being committed to it, relying upon it, clinging to it, pursuing it. These are the kinds of attitudes that should describe the men who are to be affirmed as elders in a congregation. 
They are men who have a strong interest in the Word and seek to go to the Word for whatever problems, issues, or practices uh, we might face. How often in the Old Testament, the people of Israel strayed away. If you read the Old Testament, you'll be amazed how often they kept straying away, going into various ditches to the left or to the right, away from the path that God has laid for them. And they, part of the reason, one of the patterns in those te tendencies to stray away was that they began accommodating to the pressures and the lures of the nations around them. And the spiritual leaders of Israel, instead of teaching them God's Word, instead of confronting them to say, no, we can't go there. No, we, we couldn't go in this direction because God said not to do it or we should pursue this instead of that. The people of Israel, the leaders of Israel, instead of calling God's people back to the Word of God, they allowed them to go in these practices. Actually, even worse, in several situations, it was the leaders of Israel that led God's people in these wrong practices. Friends, elders are men who cling to the trustworthy word. They are devoted to it, not in a light way. They're not satisfied with simply sprinkling a little bit of the word over our lives, just enough to give it a religious flavor and trying as much as possible to just live in the way that we feel pleasant in our own eyes. Sadly to say, Friends, there are churches today that consciously or unconsciously think that they can build God's people with something other than the Word. That we can grow churches through activities, through social attractional venues. Friends, I wonder if you realize this important qualification that elders are men who are devoted to the Word, clinging to the Word, pursuing the Word, and that devotion must be conspicuous. So here are some application questions. How do you know someone meets this qualification? Here are some questions to consider. Is a prospective elder devoted to the Word for the growth of the church? Is a prospective elder able to defend why the Word is central to the life of the church? Who are the men in the congregation who encourage us, both individually and corporately as a church, to grow in the Word, to get back to the Word, to keep our priorities aligned to the Word? Who are those people among us in whom we see this pattern that they bring us back to the Word of the Lord? Who are the men among us who love to study God's Word and actually take time to to grow in it, to understand it? And is that growth evident and fruitful? That's part of what it means and how we think about whether or not someone is devoted to the Word, clinging to the Word. There's another detail about this qualification that Paul gives here. It says, he must hold firm to the trustworthy Word as taught. Interesting. This little detail. Remember when Paul wrote most of the New Testament, um, as he was writing these letters, Christians didn't have the whole Testament all in one spot like we do today. Some of the early leaders of the church didn't have a canon 
of the New Testament, if you will, the, the New Testament portion of the Scripture, to, to say, well, here's the word of the Lord. Here's how it has been passed on to us in, in a written form. They had to rely on the preaching that they had heard from the apostles. They had to rely on the, on the word that has been transmitted by word of mouth, by living testimony uh, from one generation to the other. So, in a sense, here, Paul wants to make sure that people, as they are passing the word, these leaders that are devoting themselves to the word, they devote themselves to the word as it was taught, passed on, as it was intended. Sadly, from very early on, the temptation was to distort this truth. We actually see this danger in the very next few verses of this passage, in verses 10 through 16. Uh, we are told that there are many who are insubordinate, empty talkers, deceivers, especially those of the circumcision party. There are people in Crete who are trying to distort this word. So Paul tells Titus, it's important that these men hold on, cling to the word, not just in any way, but as it was taught. In other words, it's not simply enough to say that we hold on to the word, but do we hold on to it as it was intended? False teachers also know the word, and they use it, but they use it wrongly, and they apply it wrongly. And some of the, some of the false teachers actually know the word very well and present it in a very captivating way and give you, give you the impression that they really know the word when in the reality, they use it in a wrong way to mislead people in a wrong direction. The preachers of the prosperity gospel are just one example of teachers and preachers who speak the word very effectively, very encouragingly, and yet they would not qualify as teachers who speak the word as taught. As some of, someone told me some time ago, um, and this is, sadly, this is true, people can use the Bible to make it say whatever they want. Sadly, this is true. That's why we must examine the Word and what it was actually intended to say. We must examine the intention of the author, both the human author and the divine author, what it meant to the original audience. Friends, elders are men who seek to understand the Word as it has been intended in the first place, as it has been taught. So here's some applications for this particular um, nuance of, of qual the qualifi qualification. Do you see in an elder candidate a devotion to the Word as taught? Do they seek to understand the Bible as it was originally intended? Who are the men in the congregation whom you trust to help you understand the word better, besides me as a pastor, as your pastor. As we're going to be looking at other men who would be serving as elders and pastors, who would be other men in the congregation to whom you would go? Because you trust their wisdom of how to understand the word and interpret it and, and seek to understand it, it in its original context and, and what it means then and what it means now. Who are the men to whom you would go to ask a difficult question from the Word. Now, here's another question to consider. Is the prospective elder committed to the expositional teaching of the Word? 
And is he able to defend the church's commitment to expositional preaching? One of the, one of the characteristics of our congregation is that we are committed to teach the Word and help you, those who hear it, understand it as it was intended. That's why we go through it in, in long sections, in, in, in through a book of the Bible at a time, and want you to understand it in the original context and, and how it means for us today and how do we apply it. That's called expositional preaching. We don't want to use the Word as a launch pad for our own ideas. Some people might, uh, might, uh, might really deal with the Word of God as an, as an airplane on a runway. You know, you, you start off on a runway and then you take off. You know, and you, you may or may never come back to the same place. We, wanna, we don't want that kind of teaching in our congregation. We want teaching that goes to the Word and lets the Word guide our thinking and our teaching about the church and about the Christian life, about everything that we do. We don't want to use the Word as a drunk man uses a pole just to rest himself on it. We want to use the Word to give us illumination. So, friends, think about who are the men who are committed to this kind of attitude towards the Word. As one pastor said, because elders set the character and the tone of the teaching ministry in a church, unity in teaching philosophy is necessary. So why is it important? Um, we looked at this first qualification, that elders must be devoted to the Word as taught. But why is that important? Because of the second and the third qualification that we will look at this morning. Elders must be able to exhort. Elders must be able to exhort. Look at verse 9 again. He must hold firm to the trustworthy word as taught, so that, there's a purpose clause, so that he may be able to give instruction in sound doctrine. In 1 Timothy uh, chapter 3, Paul gives a similar requirement for elders. They are people who must be able to teach. Now, this ability to teach is one of those abilities that you don't have to, you don't have, to have it to be a Christian. You don't have to have this ability to teach in order to be a Christian. But in order to be an elder, you must have this ability. This ability to teach does not mean or is not limited simply to preaching on Sunday morning. Someone may not be very gifted in public speaking, but might be gifted in teaching God's Word with clarity and faithfulness in smaller groups. So we want to be sure that we understand this ability to teach does not necessarily mean public preaching. One of our commitments as a congregation is to create venues where our members uh, are given a chance to teach God's Word in various capacities, starting with one-on-one -on -one discipling, to teaching and leading a home group, to teaching a Sunday school class. One that I'm particularly excited about in, in the life of our church is what we started doing about a year and a half ago on Sunday nights, when after the prayer time as a congregation, we also have a short word of, of exhortation, a word of encouragement. We call them sermonettes because they're supposed to prepare and to be delivered as a sermon, but they're in a short version, 10 to 15 minutes. And we make it a point that we want men from the church to be stepping up to this task. We want to train them how to do it. We want to equip them how to do it, and then we want to give them a chance to practice it. Uh, a wonderful little book that we've been putting in the hands of our, of our members is a book called Expositional Preaching that helps our members think through this category of teaching God's Word publicly 
exposing God's Word, explaining it and applying it. And friends, one of the best things you can do as a, as a member of the congregation is to come on Sunday nights as well, to hear these men in our church deliver God's Word and see how God blesses our congregation through His Word delivered through other men besides me. I pray that God would raise more men among us who would do that work. Friends, teaching God's Word is a primary means for both spiritual life and spiritual growth. Do you remember the Great Commission? If you're a Baptist, of course you do. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And now, sadly, we stop there. But the Great Commission goes on and says, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. Friends, the teaching is not simply for the sake of knowledge. The teaching is for the sake of helping people to follow Jesus and to observe all that he has commanded us. In Titus, the qualification for being able to teach is expressed a little differently. The word Paul uses for this qualification is he doesn't say you must be able to teach. It actually gives a different expression. The ESV translates this expression by the phrase, able to give instruction. I think even this translation is a bit, or can be a bit, too narrow. Because you can give instruction in the same way that uh, a driver instructor gives instructions to a driving student. Well, that's not, a, not exactly the same kind of instruction that we are supposed to, to get out of this expression here in Titus. Another way to express the, to, to translate this word, being able to give instruction, another way to translate it is being able to exhort. Actually, that gets to the heart of what this issue is about. Being able to exhort. I love how other translations translate this verse in particular, the NASB, so that he will be able to both exhort in sound doctrine and refute those who contradict it. The NIV says, so that he can encourage others by sound doctrine and refute those who oppose it. The King James says that he may be able to, that he may be able by sound doctrine both to exhort and to convince the gainsayers. To exhort. To exhort involves giving instruction. You have to give some instruction in order to exhort, but it's a little more than just giving instruction. To exhort is not merely to give information or present content. Rather, it means urging, appealing to someone to accept the sound teaching and to respond to it appropriately. That's part of the meaning of exhorting. It means to encourage to respond to the teaching in a certain way. This means that giving a Bible lesson or a lecture on a biblical truth or piling up information about the background of the, of the Bible story is not necessarily enough. And it's not the same thing as giving an exhortation. Exhorting involves explaining the truth, and in that sense, we need to give some background information, but it gives more than that. It helps people to understand how they should live it out and encourages them to do it. And when they don't do it, even confronts them with that word. I love how Alexander Strauch 
speaks about this word exhortation urges people to receive and to apply the truth that has been taught. Now notice, elders must be able to exhort. But notice, exhort in what? Exhort in sound doctrine. Friends, elders or pastors are not merely motivational speakers. Their teaching is not merely aimed to encourage or to motivate, but to do so in sound doctrine. 1 Timothy 3, I'm sorry, 1 Timothy 6, 3. Paul says, if anyone teaches a different doctrine and does not agree with the sound words of our Lord Jesus Christ and the teaching that accords with godliness, he is a puffed up person with conceit and understands nothing. These might sound like harsh words. Now, first of all, they're not talking about non-believers. They're talking about people who pretend or claim to be Christians and, and think that they understand the word, but they actually totally miss it. It's not enough simply to walk away from a church's service with encouragement, being motivated to face a day, to face a new week. I wonder if that encouragement and motivation was grounded in sound doctrine. You can go to places that will, that will motivate you to live your best life ever now. And it may, may not be sound doctrine. It's important that today we understand that there, there are places that actually would avoid speaking about sound doctrine for the fear that people will not come back. For the people that people will not be encouraged enough or motivated enough. Well, friends, if you run into such churches or such people or such groups, run away. Unless you just want to be motivated by a human psych strategy. Friends, what we need for our motivation, for our encouragement, is sound doctrine. And sound doctrine can give us encouragement. Sound doctrine can give us motivation. Disease doctrine, on the other side, can ruin the life of a church. Disease doctrine can ruin your life and my life if we listen to it long enough. Instead, when elders teach and give exhortation in sound doctrine, the effects upon the hearers of that sound doctrine is seen in verse 13. Look at verse 13. Why should, these, why should Titus exhort people in sound doctrine? Why should he rebuke those who who actually oppose it, so that people may be sound in the faith. Oh, what a beautiful picture. Sound teaching leads to sound faith. That's why we want to be careful that the men who step up among us to be elders and spiritual leaders over us are men who are devoted to the Word and are able to instruct and to exhort people in sound doctrine. So here are some, um, some questions, qualification questions, how you can consider whether or not someone is able to meet this qualification. First of all, can a man, can a prospective elder, can he defend the faith? Can a man defend the key doctrines of the faith? Doctrines like the physical resurrection of, of Christ, the doctrine of salvation, which, include, which includes justification, sanctification, regeneration, glorification, or our view of the Bible as being the Word of God, fully inspired and inerrant? Is a prospective elder able to teach 
both the fundamentals of the faith, but also our distinctive doctrines as a church. There is a reason why we are a Baptist church. Because we have a statement of faith that has Baptistic um, doctrines in the way we view our church ordinances of baptism and the Lord's Supper, in the way we understand church governance, in the way we understand church leadership. Again, one of the pastors said, a man with teaching authority in the church should be able to fully champion the church's distinctives. Of course, assuming those distinctives are biblical. So ask yourself, is a prospective elder able to communi communicate clearly the biblical text and apply it to our lives and apply the intention of the text to us today? Can a man help us see not only the meaning of the text, but also ways in which the Bible challenges us, confronts us, even corrects us? Can a man give God godly counsel when people come to him and ask him for advice? Is he giving exhortation just from life experience, or is he giving exhortation from the Word of God? Does he know how to apply God's Word to God's people? I love the passage in 1 Thessalonians when Paul describes his own ministry to the churches in Thessalonica, to the church in Thessalonica. He says, For you know, brothers, how, like a father with his children, we exhorted each one of you and encouraged you and charged you to walk in a manner worthy of God, who calls you into his own kingdom and glory. I love that picture of how Paul describes his own teaching ministry. So ask yourself, can a prospective elder do this kind of work? To come alongside people as a father with his children, to exhort them, to encourage them, to charge them as God's people to live in a manner worthy of the Lord and to show them how to do it. And to show them how to do it. This involves more than teaching. It involves modeling. It involves discipling. It involves guiding people how to think biblically and how to live biblically. An important question to assess whether or not a man is able and ready to exhort others in sound teaching is, does a man disciple others? And is there visible fruit of his discipling? Are other people benefited by this man's or these people's discipling and exhortation whether that happens one-on-one, -on -one, in small groups, or in larger settings. But the second qualification for eldership is that an elder must be able to exhort in sound doctrine. And lastly, the third qualification is that he must also be able to rebuke. Elders must be able to rebuke. My friends, rebuking, correcting, is one of the most unpleasant things that any of us would rather do or would have to do. We would rather not do it. It's one of the hardest things I have to do as your pastor. We would rather not do it. It's one of the hardest things we have to do as parents to our children. We would rather not discipline in time. We would rather just delay it until it really gets bad, bad, bad when we should have done discipline along the way. We would rather not correct. We would rather not rebuke. It's part of our human nature. And yet, when it comes to elders and those who are qualified to lead God's people, they must be able to.
do it. You must be able to do it. Paul says to rebuke those who contradict it. The same word for rebuking appears in verse 13 in, our, in the text after our, the one we read. Rebuke them sharply, said Paul to Titus. Rebuke them sharply that they may be sound in the faith. Interesting. Not just a light rebuke. But rebuke them sharply because what? Because their faith is at stake here. This means that elders must know the word well enough to detect when someone is straying away, either by their life choices or by what they believe. Verse 10, and we see the kind of people that, that Titus had to deal with in, in Crete. He, Paul says there are many who are insubordinate, empty talkers, deceivers. Rebuke him sharply so they might know how to be sound in the faith. Friends, all Christians, all Christians are responsible to confront one another about the distortion of truth and about the sin that so easily creeps upon us. When we see it in each other, we're responsible to watch over one another and, and in love and in patience to address it. Oh, but how hard that is sometimes. If Christians fail to do this with one another, elders cannot fail in this task. Elders must be the men who are able to do it. Who will silence those who are going in the wrong direction? If, el if, if other Christians can't do it, elders must be able to. John Calvin said, a pastor needs two voices. One for gathering the sheep and the other for driving away the wolves and the thieves. The scripture supplies him with a means for doing both. In Timothy, Paul says, Now the Spirit expressly says that in later times some will depart from the faith by devoting themselves to deceitful spirits and teaching of demons. Wow. Elders must be aware of these dangers and ready to protect God's people from the deceitful spirits. For this purpose, they must have a hold grasp of the word. So here are some qualification questions. Some questions you can use to examine whether or not someone meets this particular qualification. Is an elder candidate able to discern when someone or a group of people turn away from the truth of God? Is an elder candidate is an elder candidate able to warn, able to correct, or even to rebuke those who stray away? Is an elder candidate able to protect the flock from false teaching by not allowing it or by exposing it when it has already creeped in? If someone is promoting false teaching, either intentionally or unintentionally, without realizing, is an elder candidate able to correct the people involved? Paul tells Timothy, preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season. Reprove, rebuke, exhort with complete patience and teaching. Friends, here, teaching is the means by which Timothy was to exhort to reprove, to rebuke, 
And to do so, to do all of that with complete patience. So we come full circle to the idea that able to teach is not merely able to give instruction in the sense of like able to give content. It goes beyond that. And we, sh we shouldn't settle just for that. It's able to present God's word, explain it clearly, say all the things you need to say to communicate it clearly, but then apply it to God's people in, God's, in, in, in their lives so that God's people may know how to follow Jesus better. Friends, I pray that God would bless our congregation with other fellow elders and pastors, lay pastors, who will be able to do that for us and among us. And I pray that you would be looking for them, that you would be encouraging them, that you would be praying for them. Pray that the Lord would do that in abundant measure among us. Three qualifications that are unique to elders that we looked on today were that they must be men who are devoted to the word. They must be men who are able to exhort. They must be men who are able uh, to rebuke and correct when necessary. By God's grace, we will continue on the same topic next week by looking at some other passages outside of Titus. And by Lord's will, Lord willing, uh, that will complete our sort of our mini series of just working through qualifications and that our church would be ready uh, and more equipped how to think about the men whom God might call for this task among us. Let's close our time this morning by going to the Lord in prayer. Would you pray with me? Our God and King, we praise you for your provision for your church, that you are calling men to serve as overseers, as shepherds, to guide, protect, care for, lead, instruct, teach, exhort, even rebuke your people so that we, your people, might follow you well and represent you well here on earth. So we might be a, a display of the, of the power of the gospel to, to what it means to live your kingdom, to, to exhibit your kingdom here on earth. Father, we pray that you would bless our congregation with more men who can step up and respond to this call of being shepherds of your flock here. We pray this in the name of Christ. Amen.